I expect that for a while this will likely be the last sermon out of 1 Corinthians. The, uh, the plan uh, had us really to finish up with this doctrine of vocation as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So we have spent a bit of time in, in this chapter uh, looking at uh, marriage and singleness. We've also uh, considered other aspects of the Corinthian church and what the Apostle Paul had to say as he dealt with these things that were very common in churches. And we can look at Corinth uh, as being similar, of course, to other churches. As a matter of fact, uh, even the statement here in verse 17, this is my rule in all the churches, uh, should uh, be to us uh, an affirmation of a general statement. The Apostle Paul is simply saying, as in all the other churches, Corinth, you're not unlike those churches, and this is this is the way uh, that things are declared by God. In Corinth, as in other places, those who came to Christ had lives that were changed. And like many who come to faith in Christ, they were inclined to think that they should change certain stations or conditions in life. Those married to unbelievers found it difficult to live unequally yoked. Those who were slaves or who had difficult employers had a newfound sense of justice and equality and supposed the gospel was to free them in ways beyond their shackles to sin and hell. They viewed their city in a new light and may have wanted to form groups to bring about moral reform or social Justice. Now, of course, these are not problematic things. Uh, it is appropriate that the expanse of the expressions of following Christ in the gospel and of applying all of his word to all of our culture are things that are very, very important. But the Apostle Paul's emphasis in this passage is for the Corinthians to understand that a sovereign, all-knowing God purposefully called them out of where they are spiritually to remain primarily where they are physically uh, for a purpose. And so this is the idea that comes across in this passage of Scripture. Martin Luther was particularly interested in the doctrine of vocation for several reasons. And this played a significant role in the Protestant Reformation. Along with the significant degradation of the definition of faith, the gospel, means of grace, the nature of redemption and justification, the culture that became the seedbed of the Reformation was steeped in the idea that only those with holy orders, those in a contemplative life of the monastery, could have any part in the work of God. In Luther's day, there was this idea that only, only the priest uh, was doing anything of any spiritual import, uh, while the scriptures reveal uh, that God saves us individually, purposefully, uh, that we might not only delight ourselves in a loving, redemptive Father, but, what we, but that we might live out the gospel in the places where, where we uh, were called. Luther, of course, crushed the idea to powder that uh, only those with holy orders or in the contemplative life of the monastery would have anything to do with uh, expressing faithfulness to God. As a matter of fact, he basically biblically ended those practices. Uh, To remove oneself from the culture is not a way to influence the culture with the gospel. And so Luther made that clear. 
he came to the same conclusion, of course, that the Apostle Paul does in chapter 7. The work of the Lord is done with the same gravity by the preacher and the homemaker and the merchant and the father as they enter into the vocations given to them by a loving, sovereign God. While we may have the urge to be restless, lacking biblical contentment in our new life in Christ, we should not cast off the very places and positions of our lives that God intends for us to remain for His glory and for our good. Now, this doctrine of vocation basically reframes everything that we do every day. Now, it is revolutionary, actually. And the doctrine of vocation certainly seemed that way to those that uh, were part of the Reformation early on. The, the, the newfound idea of the vocation of motherhood, for instance, or what it meant to be a church member, or how to express uh, my redemption as a tradesman uh, in that way. And, and so we understand that the Apostle Paul, as he looked at the Corinthian church and he recognized what it was that you know, the Holy Spirit was doing in their lives, he had to urge them to recognize that God hasn't overlooked where they are but He has purposefully saved them where they are uh, in many ways to be an influence where they are with the gospel. But beyond that, beyond the simple, if you will, utility of where they happen to be redeemed, He also shed biblical light on the very purposes of these different vocations. What What is the grand purpose, for instance, of the vocation of being a daughter. Being a daughter in a family is a vocation. It's a calling. Now, you of course recognize that you didn't select to be called to be a daughter. God did that. But nonetheless, simply being a daughter, for instance, and I'm using this as an example, carries with it uh, responsibilities and privileges in the gospel. And so, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul wanted the folks to understand this idea in Corinth, that there are these vocations that God called us to, whether they were positional or professional, we see that there was a grand purpose in all of these things. And, and uh, he, he helps for us to understand the urgency of it when, when he repeats on a number of occasions, you were bought with a price. In other words, as we've mentioned before, uh, we have been bought and paid for, for express purposes. Uh, Very good purposes, but nonetheless directed not by our own whimsical ideas, but by a sovereign God. And of course directly associated with this doctrine of vocation brings with it the idea of contentment in Christ. Contentment in Christ I sent the folks that are on my email list anyway, two documents last night. One of those documents is William Perkins' Treatise on Vocation, and the other is a document by Jeremiah Burroughs on contentment. And the ladies are going to look at that work on contentment coming up on Thursdays. But nonetheless, these these two ideas go hand in hand, um, and it 
you know, it's important that we recognize the connection between them, but also understand what it is that we mean by biblical contentment associated with it. It isn't, for instance, Stoicism. Um, Burroughs, as a matter of fact, draws a distinction. He says, an inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit is not the same as natural quietness, which remains the same whether they've been crossed, whether God has been crossed, or whether they've sinned against God. In other words, biblical contentment isn't this quietness of spirit that basically takes everything as if nothing happened, like a concrete pillar, for instance. And that wouldn't be biblical contentment. The idea in biblical contentment is that we affirm that an all-wise sovereign God has placed us in the context of our lives in order that we would live out our lives under the directions of the Scriptures. We certainly should not be content in ungodliness. Contentment is freely submitting and taking pleasure in God's disposal. Pleasure in God's disposal, as Burroughs says, not as they make up the wants of their circumstances, but by the performance of their works in His circumstances. I think what Burroughs means by that in part is this idea that we don't grow in our contentment by bargaining that if I get a certain thing, I'll be okay in this situation. But the idea in contentment is is that we affirm where it is that God has placed us and we urgently work toward faithfulness in that regard. But let's look at the passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now I'd like to ask you to notice initially here this idea of benevolent personal sovereignty. Benevolent personal sovereignty. Now, we, uh, as God's people that are confessional, we, you know, we're kind of on to this sovereign thing, right? We, we understand that God is all-wise and sovereign. He purposefully uh, has thought through, before the foundation of the world, every molecule, every aspect of our lives, so we understand that. But often, we tend to apply this concept of sovereignty maybe to large organizations like the church or maybe the family or something like that where what we see here is the Apostle Paul is very distinctively talking about individuals. There is a personal, benevolent sovereignty. Now, what I mean by benevolent is just simply that it's good. It's good. Like you, I have questioned God's goodness in the places and positions that He has called me. I have questioned whether or not He has known what He is doing. And and I I think that, uh, while perhaps a sermon for another day, I don't want you to get the idea here uh, that being content in Christ is like being a wave tossed in the sea. Those two things are not the same. 
being a wave tossed to and fro in the sea is a description of a person who refuses to apply the Word of God, refuses to embrace what Christ has done for them, and refuses to follow Him actively applying the truths of Scriptures to every step that they take. Our God has revealed Himself as one who not only knows when a sparrow falls, but actually planned the event of its falling. Now this is something that is a challenge for us. Because it's uncomfortable for us uh, to think through this entire simple idea Matthew 10.29 are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father, says the Lord Jesus. Now, the discomfort in this is that most of us are very ready to affirm that God knows all things. But what we're not ready to affirm is that God plans all things. That He plans all things. He isn't simply a cosmic opportunist where He will assuage someone that feels bad over a terrible situation. No, again, as uncomfortable as it may seem, God purposefully planned those things. And His purposes in that are not unassociated with this doctrine of vocation. I would draw your attention to the book of Acts in chapter 2, verse 23. As this great sermon in Acts, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now the point in this passage is, is that it was through absolutely wicked deeds that the Lord Jesus Christ was taken to the cross. But nonetheless, we understand that this was through a purposeful plan that the Father in heaven had determined long before it happened. And this is hard sometimes for us to take in. But, you know, let us be a people who, again, rightly understand what God is doing, and then we can rightly apply His truths and follow. God designs the circumstances of our lives, the places we live, the neighbors we have, the opportunities given to us. Yes, He does it many times in the context of personal choice, but our choices are never mere selections made in the context of a conscious untouched by outside affections and inclinations. This is the point that I'm trying to make. We certainly affirm that we make choices in life. We affirm that. God gives to us the freedom to make choices in life. But what the Apostle Paul is getting at in this larger doctrine of vocation is this idea that it's impossible for us to make a selection, as it were, in a vacuum. We don't decide to do things based on reasons that are absolutely untouched by our own history, by our own culture, by our own understanding, by our own education. That's the point. And we've got to really, as it were, fight our way through all that and recognize that what God would have us to do is to make choices based on biblical principle. 
But also, to go further, the Apostle Paul affirms that as we make choices, a sovereign God is involved in those choices. Not necessarily approving. But nonetheless, we see that wherever it is we land, God has allowed that to occur sovereignly and that He does have purposes for you in that. And this will get at the heart of what it even means for us to understand God's will. Oftentimes when we think about God's will, and we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, we're inclined to think that what God's will is, it's that thing that I want to know. It's that thing of the future. It's like, God, what do you want me to do? You're referring to the secret will of God. We affirm that God speaks in His Scriptures. And His Scriptures are not going to contain the address of the next job you're going to have. It's not there. Those are the secret things of God. He, He knows those things, but He has purposefully decided not to tell you. The will of God is what it is that's in His Word. That's the revealed Word of God. That's the revealed will of God. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit isn't somehow for us to mysteriously understand what He wants us to do in that sense. But it has to do with sanctification. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The name of the third person of the Trinity has to do with holiness. And so our own conscience as applying the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit's work is not to reveal to you the future, but it's to reveal to you how to be holy. It's about sanctification. And God has determined that a large part of our own sanctification has to do with our vocations. You say things are really hard. Motherhood is a challenge. Yes, it is a challenge. It's a purposeful challenge to shape mother into one who is holy, like the Lord Jesus. And it is in the crucible of that. It's in the crucible of perhaps an outwardly unpleasant job that many men are shaped into the image of Christ. This is why we should be so careful to be continually watching over with fear and repentance our hearts. The Bible says, Watch over your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It is that well of life, if you will, that is how we make decisions, right? And we've got to cleanse and continually cleanse, if you were, the well that is the centerpiece of our souls so that we can then make biblical decisions. These life stations are the various callings of our lives which provide the essence of the context of our gospel labors. Again, back to verse 17, "...only let each person lead the life that the Lord assigned him, to which God has called him." 
I distinctly remember those early days on that submarine. And I distinctly remember that working all of that time was not very tasteful to me. And I also distinctly remember that the Lord had a purpose in bringing me there. And I distinctly remember that I wanted to leave every day. And I'm so grateful that I didn't. I'm so grateful that I didn't because the Lord had much to show me in that crucible. And a few of those things, I think, that I got. And He's still working on the rest of it. To which God has called. The new life's restless inclinations are to be moderated. They're to be moderated. He says, again in verse 17, this is my rule in all the churches. Three times in these eight verses, the Apostle Paul presses this point. In verse 17, he says, Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. In verse 20, each one should remain in the condition which he was called. Verse 24, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, perhaps I should state at the outset here, there, there are a number of ways that this can be taken very wrongly. The implication um, might be that uh, one should remain in situations that are unbiblical and ungodly. That is not the proposition of the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, we can see this in the context even of chapter 7 regarding marriage. Those who were unequally yoked may not biblically stay together. And the Apostle Paul is approving of the situation of divorce in that case. Now, this is a hard matter. And it's not a simple matter, but nonetheless, the proposition is absolutely not that we remain in untenable, unbiblical situations. That's not what the Apostle Paul is referring to in vocation. There are situations that we, in applying the truths of God's Word, must remove ourselves from. As a matter of fact, there are some vocations uh, that are not biblical. And that's one of the things that even Martin Luther dealt with in all of his writings on vocation, where there are some jobs, if you will, that simply couldn't stand up to biblical principle. You can't be a gangster as a biblical vocation. It doesn't work, right? He He doesn't call... Wives to remain in abusive homes. 
That's, that, would be, that would be an unbiblical application to the doctrine of vocation regarding being a wife. Stations in life are not about us. About God and neighbor. Keeping the commandments of God. Love for God and love for neighbor. We see this in verse 19. Uh, Verse 18 may be uh, kind of interesting to you. Verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks and so forth. It... uh, Apparently, uh, there actually was a surgery that could remove the marks of circumcision for those young people that wanted to express themselves more as the Greeks did in their day in Corinth. The Apostle Paul, again, moderating this inclination, he encouraged them to recognize that that wasn't what they needed to be about. He says in verse 19, Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. He's not, again, the Apostle Paul isn't promoting some sort of self-righteous legalism, but he's simply coming to the same conclusion that the wise man Solomon did in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what the wise man Solomon came to in Ecclesiastes was exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, right? Work with all your might, fear God and obey the commandments. Right? We're, we're chugging along faithfully. We're content where God has placed us. We're applying faithfully the Scriptures, the Word of God. We're, we're, we're recognizing a new objective standard even for something like joy, right? And faithfulness and this kind of thing. Verse 21, were you a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul isn't willy-nilly here with indentured servitude or slavery, but nonetheless, what the Apostle Paul is getting at here is that, to be sure, your station in life as a slave is not the most important big news story of your redemption. The Lord Jesus didn't save you so that He could remove you from where you are. Now, again, there are potential possibilities and untenable situations where there needs to be removal as we apply the scriptural principles. Nonetheless, the Apostle Paul is making for us a new objective standard, a reframing of what it is that we do every day and why it is that we do it. Yeah, if you can become a free man, do it. Legally. But if not, don't worry about it. Say, well, what do you mean by that? Don't worry about it. Have you ever been a slave? The idea is that we meet God in a special way. In the amazing challenges of our vocations. 
And when we move out of where it is that God has us, simply because it's hard, then we are removing the possibility of this fellowship of suffering that is a necessity in growing in Christ. And again, this fellowship of suffering is not about you being in an untenable, unbiblical situation, but it's about you being in that which is approvable of the Scriptures and that you proceed on and see the Lord at work. Because stations in life are not about us. They're not about us. This is where the crosses are born and the spiritual growth really occurs in our callings. Can you love God and neighbor where you are? How many of you have said, you know, I would really be a nice guy if only? If my boss wasn't such a jerk, I'd be a real joy to be around. If my husband were like this, fill in the blank. Right? Now again, we're, we're applying the truths of Scripture. There's a great danger here for us to misunderstand what it is the Apostle Paul is saying. Right? We've, already, we've already been through together the urgency of admonishing one another in Christ, the need for daily reproof and repentance, this, this idea in the context of the way that God works. Right, But nonetheless, we see that the, the challenges of our lives are what bring us into this unique fellowship of suffering and fellowship of the Son. Do you view your, do you view your vocations as primarily about yourself? Young people, as you mature, do you view your vocation as son or daughter as that which primarily takes or that which primarily gives? I often encounter people that are, as a chaplain anyway, retiring from the military and or they're leaving the military, which of course both of those things are perfectly legitimate and biblical, but nonetheless, sometimes when people leave, they say, well, this isn't fun anymore. And I think, well, why did you join the military? Is it because you thought it was going to be just a bag of laughs or something? I mean, what, what did, why, why did you, why are you here? And this really... It, it reveals why it is we do things. And today in our culture, it would be very hard for us to remove ourselves from this idea that what I do, whether it's positional or professional, is really about me. But the Apostle Paul is assuring the Corinthians and those that follow that it actually isn't about you. It's not about you. And that may change the way you make decisions and how you, how you work and act every day. We leave something else when we leave our station. Leaving station does impact the way God works. One brief example, something that you're all familiar with. Let's consider the example of David and Bathsheba. 
Now, the story about David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba being the woman that David committed adultery with, uh, is written in a very simple but profound way. The Bible indicates that David was at his house at the time when kings go to war. Now, what was David's occupation, his profession at the time of the writing? Well, he was a king whose army was at war. But where was he? Well, he was at home. No doubt entering into a routine. This beautiful woman happened to be taking some sort of bath on her rooftop at the same time every day, and I just happened to be there. And I'm the king. And I can do what I want. And the implication, again, is that David, had he more fully entered into his vocation, he wouldn't have been there. Now, that wouldn't have removed the lust from his heart, but it certainly would have removed him from the occasion of his sin. And there's a lot of importance there. The Bible urges us to make no provision for the flesh. And while controlling a lustful heart is one thing, I don't have to go to those places and carry out the act. Our vocations, when we leave station, impacts the way God works and protects us from evil. This is a very, very simple notion. A very simple notion. People get into trouble all the time. They get into trouble all the time. Often the occasions of them getting into trouble is when they should be doing something else. (laughs) What happened at the bar last night at 2 in the morning? Oh, well, you wouldn't believe what happened at the bar. And my question is, well, why were you at the bar at 2 in the morning? Things are never good at bars. And they're certainly never good at bars at 2 in the morning. At 2 in the morning, your vocation is to be sleeping. Right? It's to be sleeping. And you wonder how you get into trouble. Right? Or, or you should have been at work. You should have been doing this or that. What is a vocation or a calling? It's a certain condition or kind of life. We're naturally inclined to view our lives as a series of chronological stages that we pass through, and no doubt there's a stair-step field of the number of events in our lives. For instance, maturing to adulthood, passing from student to apprentice to master, working toward a worthy goal. Yet we must admit that viewing life this way has a way of flattening out the contours of our life and reducing our lives to the completion of a few key goals with very little fulfillment or consequential engagement with the people God has placed around us in this life. In other words, we often tend to view life as a series of stair steps, right? And I'm all about what's the next step. What's the next step? What do I do next? Okay, I'm about to get out of high school. What's next? Well, it's not a bad question. It's not a bad question at all. It's just that it reveals an unbiblical view of life. 
right? God has set before us a life in which every moment actually is quite important. And, and yeah, we, we need to keep in the back of our minds, okay, where are we going? That's a very important question. What it is that we're doing? How am I going to prepare myself for this calling, for the gifts that God has given to me? How will I, how will I do this in, in my own station, with my own educational opportunities and the financial support that I have? Whatever it is, God is going to work through all of that, right? But, but we, we, we utterly miss what it is that God's about if our life is only five or six stepping stones. But the question that we we need to primarily ask ourselves is what is the Lord about in my life today, right now, at this moment? Who is it that's right in front of me? Who are these people? What, What gospel word do I have for them? What is it in their lives that can sharpen me? Why am I here? And these are the ideas that the Apostle Paul is getting at in vocation. Each each occupies certain stations in life. Husband, wife, son, daughter, merchant, farmer, mechanic. External relationships have great responsibilities and are the very essence of any society. I think that it's helpful to think of these vocations in terms of positional and professional. There are other ways to break them up, but nonetheless, it's most helpful, I think, to think of it in those terms because they're all vocations, positional and professional. Now, the reality is, is primarily the positional ones we really don't have any choice in. Sure, you've got a choice in who you marry, but once you're married, you're married. You've got to make this thing work, Right? Biblically. And God has set before us all kinds of resources and opportunities for us to not merely just kind of make it through, right? Not to, not to uh, repeat the same year 35 times, but to actually grow in that. Right? To enjoy and grow in that. But then there are their professional vocations as well. The ways that the Lord provides for us financially, of course, are in this category. The Bible reveals here, as in verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. They're imposed on man by God. The author of every calling is God. Now, this, is, this can be uncomfortable. You say, well, could God call me to a vocation that makes a whole lot of money? I only work a couple hours a day and I get to drive really cool cars. That's what I want. Well, it's not the vocation God has selected for me. They're for the common good. This is the final end of our callings. For the common good. Do you think of it in those terms? When you're slugging it out every day at work, in a tough job, or when you're at home, sweeping up Cheerios for the hundredth time, what are you thinking about? It's, it's purposeful. 
It's not empty. It's very important. It seems common that when one gets bored with their callings, they begin to complain. They insert themselves inappropriately in other people's lives as a busybody implying that they have completed everything in their assigned vocations. I talked to a man yesterday who was telling me uh, just about how things kind of run at his house. He just had a son that graduated from high school and he informed his son that he has one year and that and that the law requires him to take care of his children until they're 18 and after that he has no responsibility for them at all. I mean, if I'm going to appeal to the civil law to express the complete content of my vocation as father, I guess uh, I could do that. But that, that would be wrong. Now, the proposition isn't that you need to have somebody that lives in your basement until they're 35, but the proposition is that what is my vocation? What? And, and when we go about inappropriately inserting our lives in other people's lives, the implication is is that I have margins in my life in which I can step away from because I'm all through over here. Right? When we, we say, well, I've done all I can. Well, ha- have you? Say, well, I provided a roof over their head. Well, okay. Did you teach them to love God? Because that's your vocation. When you think about that bad job, you say, well, I showed up on time every day. Well, okay. Okay. Does your boss describe you as a guy that really is a hard, diligent worker? Does your sassy mouth get you in trouble? Well, then you've you've not done all you can. Are you growing in grace? You say, well, they make me angry. Well, that's why you're there. That's why you're there. And God forbid that you would leave before you get that fixed because you're just going to take that to the next place. And you're going to blame it on your work. It's not your boss's fault. This is the purpose of vocation. This idea that we, we literally come to the end of ourselves. You say, well, I can't do that anymore. And the Lord Jesus says this. That's exactly how I planned it. You can't do this anymore. And the Apostle Paul says, When I am weak, then I'm strong. How many mothers at home wring their hands and say, I can't do this anymore? That's right. That's right. As a matter of fact, you couldn't do it before today either. And that's where Christ steps in. And that's where we really begin 
to enter into the fellowship of the Son is to acknowledge our vulnerabilities and recognize, I never could do this. But Christ in me can work at this biblically lawful vocation in a way that is faithful and that results in goodness. John 15:5 says I am the vine and you are the branches Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing I am the vine and you are the branches Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Even in the seemingly best of circumstances, the challenges of life are not simple. People that kind of look like they've made it, often don't do so well. But again, we forget, and in this age, we live in an age of self-absorption for sure. We live in an age that has a poor reflection of even the word duty or self-denial. But these are the ways of the Master. And it isn't to make us a people who are harsh and unkind, but it's to develop uh, the certainty of the necessity of abiding in Christ. In reflecting on this tremendous implication of abiding in Christ... I think it was someone mentioning to Bunyan about those reformers who were burned in the flames and they referred to them as those who were writhing in the flames. And Bunyan said, no, no, no. They weren't writhing in the flames. They were singing in the flames. They were singing in the flames. And you say, well, that was an act. No? I don't think so. I think that they were the same as the three Hebrew children, as it were, in the fiery furnace. And with them was one, as it says in the book of Daniel, as the Son of Man. And the Lord Jesus had a designation for Himself. And it was none other than that which applied to him in Daniel, the Son of Man. It's in these beautiful vocations, the challenges, the day in and day out challenges of our lives, the Apostle Paul is saying, that's where we meet Jesus. 
Let's pray. O God, a sweet word to us today. 